Hey, this is Rick Probst from Faith Talk Live. Dan Ratcliffe and myself were so privileged to meet so many amazing folks at the 2017 Pastors Appreciation Event. It was a great meal with so many phenomenal ministry leaders of Atlanta. Dr. A.R. Bernard brought some incredible truths about truth itself. And that message is coming up in just seconds. For more information about Dr. A.R. Bernard, Faith Talk Live with Rick and Dan, and Faith Talk Atlanta, you can go to our website, faithtalkatlanta.com. Now the Pastor's Appreciation 2017 message from Dr. A.R. Bernard. Enjoy. But We've been blessed to see and experience some incredible things in ministry uh, in New York and across the world. I came from a very radical background and a revolutionary time in United States history. I grew up in the 60s in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, Bushwick, Brooklyn. Um, I was part of social movements, social activism, and finally, uh, five years, I was involved in an organization called the Nation of Islam. I was a black Muslim. And I was there growing up without a father uh, for the sake of order, discipline, identity, strength, but never bought into the racism that was perpetrated by that particular doctrinal mindset. I understood it not as a religious belief, but a protest against America's failure to deal with the socioeconomic plight of African Americans in this country. So I was able to put it in perspective, which left my mind open to God. I always intuitively felt that God, truth, and reality were synonymous. And if I found one, the other two would have to be present. And I didn't find everything there. But on a, uh, January 11th, 1975, after a year that my secretary, because I was a banker for 10 years, an operations specialist, and God sent a little Pentecostal woman to be my secretary. And uh, for that whole year, she used to give me these things called tracks. You all know what tracks are? <laughs> yeah. And she'd put them on the desk, and I'd read them, and, you know, and I would engage her because I was, I was always cerebral and read a lot. The Bible was a great piece of literature for me. So I had a lot of questions, and her pastor finally told her, you know, leave this guy alone. He's going to confuse you. But she stayed with it, and we would have conversations. And uh, what intrigued me was her simple childlike faith, not her ability, not her apologetics, because she didn't have that level of sophistication in defense of the faith, but it was that simple childlike faith, that deep love that she had for this Jesus, who for me was a prophet in a long line of prophets, in spite of my Catholic early upbringing. You know, um, I was influenced by a lot of the social change that was taking place uh, in, in American society at the time, especially as a person of color uh, growing up where I did. And uh, so it intrigued me. And finally, she invited my wife and I to a meeting um, where a guy named Nicky Cruz was sharing his testimony. And that night, something deep and profound happened to me. Um, I heard two things in my heart. Number one, I'm the God you're looking for. And I knew that that was Jesus. And to know Jesus as God, that's a very radical proposition. You've got to understand. Um, the, the, the infinite God to incarnate in a human person, that's, that's something that you come to by faith. It has to, you have to experience a deep revelation of that, that truth, that reality. The second thing I heard um, was, I and my word are one. And that was important because the images of Jesus that I had were images from movies and paintings and literature and artwork. And, you know, depending upon what culture you were in, that determined the features he had on his face. 
all right? Because if you were in white America, it was blue-eyed, long-haired Jesus. If you were down on Fulton Street in Brooklyn, he had a big afro and, uh, you know, was very culturally relevant. If you were in India, he had very Indian-shaped eyes. So I got it. So my relationship left these images that came from the culture and focused me on the Word. And the Word of God became Jesus to me. And that's when my journey began to understand revealed truth. And I always believe that God entered history, not to separate us from history, but to teach us how to have a relationship with him and walk through history. So I live at the intersection of faith and culture. So my proposition is not come out from among them, be ye separate, say it, the Lord touch not the unclean thing. No, mine is go into all the world and preach the gospel and be present within the society without being a product of its values at, that are antagonistic to the kingdom of, of God. So I've had a wonderful 40 years of ministry and exciting, uh, excitingly looking for the next 20 years uh, of, of ministry. Because my prayer is that my latter years be the most glorious years of my life. And that should be your prayer as well. Amen. Look. Your youth, your youth is renewed continually, and inwardly we are renewed. Never mind what's happening to the body outside, and we, 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 we're required to keep that in check, all right? But you've got to live out your life with that inner vitality of spirit that is constantly growing and learning and expanding. So living interior life is more important, all right, as it impacts your exterior life. I wanted to share some things with you uh, in the time that we have, to leave some thoughts and ideas with you, because we, we're living in a very rapidly changing world. And in uh, 1974, Alvin Toffler wrote a book and coined a phrase called Future Shock. And it was really a, a culturally prophetic look out into the future and the changes that were taking place as old social systems and uh, traditional ideas and values begin to break down and all these new ideas flood into a society. And we've seen that because the 1960s was really a, a place of every revolution imaginable, social, music revolution, uh, cultural, spiritual revolution, uh, political revolutions were all taking place. And here it is 50 years later that we're seeing how it has played out in our society. And cultural change does affect ministry. That's the reality. You know, we have the Catholic Church. Um, they're upset with me uh, in New York, even though I have a close relationship with the Archdiocese and the Vatican, uh, because we do charitable work together. Um, but they're upset with me because they, they said I'm stealing their sheep. 37% uh, of our new members over the last eight years come from the Catholic Church. Uh, and it's not that we are, I told them, look, we don't steal sheep, we grow grass. So, you know, um, sheep naturally grow, grow grass. And in today's culture, let me qualify what kind of grass we grow. So, no one leaves here with any misconceptions about what I just said. Um, but in their attempts to respond to the rapidly changing world, they began to have masses in, in different languages. And what happened out of that is that they ended up with 18 different language groups and therefore 18 different congregations simply using the building. And that's not a community. That's not a congregation. A, con a crowd is not a congregation. A congregation is a community of people 
who come together under a shared vision, a set of shared values. Amen? And are willing to work through the inevitable frictions of human relationship and adhere to those values and continue with that vision. And that can be quite a challenge in this rapidly changing world. We have old patterns of life that are clashing with the new demographic, spiritually, racially, you know, a, a, a celebrity and convenience obsessed society, technologically driven, so that they can go to church from their living room. You know, uh, Ron was reminding me, as we had a conversation at the table, you know, I, we, we do a live streaming of our 10 o'clock service, and I looked out at the camera and I said, you know, and, and I see all you people out there who used to come to the building and now you're watching through live streaming, although you live across the street from the church. I'm watching you. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's convenience obsessed society. That's a reality. Uh, mostly among single millennials, and then when they get married and settle down, they realize that you cannot grow a family by watching church on TV or, or a computer screen. All right, so they go through a process and then realize that, you know, the purpose of the church hasn't changed in 2,000 years. The church of Jesus Christ is ancient in the sense that we have a 2,000 year history uh, but we are also contemporary in that we are definitely relevant to our times. We haven't practiced that relevancy as effectively as we should and could, all right, and that's something I will try to touch on in the time that we have. But here's some changing realities, and I want to talk about change. Change is the only constant in life. Change is the only constant in life. We're always going through changes. Change is the essence of maturation. We'll never mature in life, individually, collectively, as a body, as an organization, as a ministry, as a family. We won't mature in life unless we're willing to change. Amen? Amen. Truth is the, truth brings the conviction necessary for change. Jesus said, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. So truth brings the conviction necessary for change. And the nature of truth is that all truth is confrontational. I'm going to try that one more time. All truth is confrontational. You will not change unless you're willing to be confronted by the truth. And we live in a society where too much of our ministry is non-confrontational because we want to make people feel comfortable. But Jesus brought grace and truth. Grace to deal with the burden of guilt, but truth to effect change. Are you with me? This is the part where you say, he's preaching real good. So the culture changes, and we have to adapt to that, adjust to that, without losing the essence of who we are. And it's not always easy to do that. I want to give you somewhat of a framework with that. So change is the essence of maturation. Truth brings the conviction necessary for change, because we won't change unless we're willing to be confronted with the truth. Therefore, all truth is confrontational. When change is necessary, not to change can be destructive. When change is necessary, not to change can become destructive. 
and change will take place from the top voluntarily or from the bottom by revolution. I'm gonna try that one more time. Change will take place from the top voluntarily or from the bottom by revolution. And we are seeing revolutionary changes taking place in our nation because of changes that have failed to take place over time from the top here in our country. We're being forced to rethink and reevaluate things. So like in the 60s, I'm a baby boomer, so like in the 60s where we were evaluating the foundations upon which we built our personal life and the foundations upon uh, which the society is built, people are doing that again today. They're taking a look at the foundations upon which they're building their personal life and the foundations of our society, American society. They're reflecting on foundational beliefs and, and, and values. They're reflecting on foundational institutions like faith, like family, like education, like government. And they're reevaluating the role of these institutions, influencing who they are as a person and how society should continue. Culture is that integrated system of beliefs, traditions, customs, ideas, products, values, technologies that constitute the life of a people. Essentially, culture is man's idea of how society should be organized and the best way to live in it. And we have conflicting ideas because we have conflicts of vision, conflicts of values. As believers who are informed biblically, because the Bible informs us, amen, in terms of our worldview and the lens through which we see and make sense of the world around us, right? And that clashes with people who are not in relationship with God, who are not using scripture as the authority in their life. So we will come up with different ideas as to how society should be organized and how we should effectively live within that society. So we begin to rethink structures like family. And in this society, family has been under attack for the last 70 years in American society, all right? Because when government got involved in, in, in the marriage institution that was basically ruled by the church, everything changed within the society, amen? So the family, which is foundational to society, is, has been under attack. All right, and that begins to affect everything else that goes on within that society. So we have different notions of what family should look like. So we have the modern family. We have the new normal. And we have all of these expressions. And understand what's going on because whoever controls the language controls the conversation. So society, culture quickly seizes the language trying to influence how we should think about these things. Amen? So that is challenging to the church. Because now how do we respond? Because the, the people who are coming to our churches are asking questions differently. And things that were accepted one time as normal are now being challenged and saying, well, what's wrong with that? So we, we can live in a world where people want to not get married, but live together and enjoy the benefits of marriage and wonder what's wrong with that. Not realizing that one, 
living together is involvement, being married is commitment. So what you're saying, you want involvement without commitment. And that has a social impact. Am I still preaching good yet? Okay, just stay with me. All right. that's, that's why you know, look, look, we are the pillar of, and ground of truth, the church. All right, We are salt in the earth. And the salt cannot lose its savor, its relevance to the society. Otherwise, society will do what? Trample it underfoot, cast it out as irrelevant. And that's why, for me, the church is so important. I see pastors, you know, the church means nothing. Are you serious? It is in these times of rapidly changing world and cultural norm that the church stands at the forefront of change, bringing solidity and stability to a society that can collapse in chaos. You are very important right now, people. You've got to understand your value. Don't let the devil talk you out of that. Society devalue you from the role that you play within the society and how you are important to every fiber that represents culture and society. All right? That's why Jesus said, go out into the world, the social order and its institutions, and be present and make a difference, make a change. So, I mean, there's so much we can say about this, but let me, if, if I can just do this, we live in a sight and sound generation, so I like to just write it out as well. In 1900, and this is why it's so important that we are clear on our mission and our vision as who we are as a church, all right? Because right now, America's in an identity crisis, and unfortunately, the church of Jesus Christ is in an, especially in the West, is in an identity crisis. See, I was having breakfast with uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu um, several years ago, because I was in uh, South, South Africa before, during apartheid and post-apartheid, and I watched the transition that was taking place, and it was quite difficult. And we were at breakfast in, in, in New York, and um, you're familiar with Bishop Desmond Tutu, he was very involved in the transitional government when uh, Mandela took over. And I said, Bishop, and this was a rhetorical question because I knew what's happening on the ground because of my relationships in South Africa. And I said, Bishop, what's, what's happening with the church in, in South Africa now? It's been 10 years post-apartheid. What's happening? He said the church is in crisis. He said because during apartheid, the church knew what it was against. But after apartheid, the church doesn't know what it's for. See, and that's a problem if we can only be defined by what we are against. Because once the problem is solved, the cause is gone, who are we? See, and Jesus never established us to be against. He established us to be for. That can mean we're antagonistic to certain things. But we can't lose sight of why we're here, our purpose. Amen? Very, very important to us. So... Change is taking place very rapidly, uh, again. And there are certain factors that I, I want to refer to because today, more than ever, your choices matter. Your choices always matter. But today, more than ever, your choices matter. Your choices determine your destiny. Our lives are composed of our choices, constructed by our words, but composed of our choices. And your choices determine your destiny. And we become servant to the choices that we make. 
And why our choices are more critical today and why the church's influence and God's influence on people's thinking is critical because the choices have consequences for a longer period of time. In 1900, the average lifespan in America was 46 years. That was the life expectancy. People live longer, but the average life expectancy in 1900 was 46 years. So you understand why people were getting married at 13 years old, 14 years old. They were making life choices much earlier in life. Now science says that the frontal lobes through which we reason and make quality decisions don't develop in a human being until age 27. And yet, choices were being made long before the development of the brain to make those kind of choices. Never mind moral and, and, and ethical things that come into play. So within the first 46 years, people were making big decisions. Nor did they have to worry about long-term decisions because health care was not what it is, technology, all of these things didn't exist. So, you know, 46 years was a short period of time. Now you look back and say, gosh, that's great because, <laughs> you know, you get it over and done with. <laughs> there was sickness, there was disease, there was poverty, and that's why the Social Security system is failing because the Social Security never expected us to live this long. So the system can go bankrupt because it didn't anticipate the changes that would play out, you know, a century later. So that was a lifespan. So your choices did not have such long-term consequence, but you did have to make some very serious life choices. Marriage is a life choice. Who are you going to marry? All of those things were involved. See? A hundred years later, um, let, me, let me give you an exact <laughs> Hundred years later, we'll go. Yeah, we'll go. The statistics, the stats for the year 2000. The average lifespan in 2000 in America is 79. 79 years old. Okay. By 2050, men are going to live till 86, and women 92. So you're going to outlive us. You outnumber us as it is. See? 79 years. It's a long time. And you say, gosh, that's great, I got more time. That's a double-edged sword. See, I got married when I was 19. You get married when you're 19 now, you gotta think, what, can I spend 73 years with this person? I'm just saying. <laughs> My wife and I celebrated October 1st, our 45th wedding anniversary. So we've been married 45 years. But things like healthcare, jobs, people, you know, people are changing careers, not jobs. At one time, you change jobs, but within the same career. Now people are changing careers three or four different times within their lifespan. See? And, and what's worse, if, if, we, if we maintain a 65, 66, 67 retirement age, now you potentially have another 30 years to get old and sick. And concern yourself with how you're going to take care of yourself. One of the disappointments of the millennial generation is that they're, most, they're the most educated generation in, 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 in our history, all right? 
but the most disappointed because with all that education, they're not able to secure the kind of jobs and income that the baby boomers did, or Gen Xers did. They have the highest rate of depression, the millennial generation. And they are now the largest population uh, generation in, in American uh, history. Okay? They're having a longer time to live. Millennials are getting married at age 30, if they get married. They're starting a family at age 32, right? In my generation, when you're at age 32, you're already facing midlife crisis. <laughs> now, it's just like, you know, where are we? So everything's changing. And these are the people that are coming to our churches asking for counseling. How do I deal with this reality? How do I deal with that? You see? And they're coming with a different set of values than, than, than what we grew up with. And they're wondering whether we are relevant or not. See? So the, the, the change in terms of how long we're living, increased life expectancy, boy, does the Psalm 90, verse 12 apply. Lord, teach me to number my days that I might apply my heart to wisdom. Amen? Because if you don't have that, you've got a whole lot of life to mess up now. See? You know, I read the pre, the pre, the antediluvian period, and I'm saying, gosh, imagine, imagine living 960 years? You know, no wonder there was violence in the earth. That's a lot of time to sin, you know what I mean? So it changes how we think about life and how we apply our faith to life. You know, another thing that, that is changing things very quickly is technology. Technology. Boy, is that having an impact. And we can talk about that in many, many different ways, but I, 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 I want to point this out about technology for us because we are experts on human nature, aren't we? What do you think you've been dealing with? Oh, I'm sorry, let me get biblical. The works of the flesh. Does that help you all out? Okay. <laughs> what are we always dealing with? Human nature. Isn't it true? That's what we're dealing with. Technology has done something that really enhances the need for what we do. Technology has made your interior life public. Did you hear what I just said? On your way to this building, you were captured by over a hundred surveillance cameras. You just don't know it. And if you do something wrong, you will discover it. It is amazing how they're able to go through, it takes them a little while sometimes to compile it, but they're able to capture on camera a crime the person didn't even know. And it's true. Your interior life is captured. Now, I, I, I love that passage because it's so true when James said, the tongue is an unruly evil. Who can control it? Set on fire by hell and Twitter. I'm just saying, folks. Social media has created a platform for the most unruly element 
to the human personality. Unfiltered. And you can't take it back. In New York, we, have a, uh, we, we had a congressman who thought a lot about his anatomy. And he thought other people would be interested in it. And he thought he was keeping it private. Listen, folks, forget about it. Forget about private. Technology has made the interior life public. So you can't hide. I thank God that I grew up at a time where I made all my mistakes privately. There were only a few witnesses. But now, that's it. Which means you have to pay more attention to how you are living your interior life. Which means you need a body of truth, a set of principles and values that are consistent over time to develop that interior life so that you can truly be the best you. And the church continues to play that role within human society. I love what I do. I'm telling you, you should love what you do. But sometimes we need a fresh look at what we do, the purpose for what we do, in order to really appreciate it and pour ourselves into it. You have a special call of God to society and to this world. Don't you ever let anyone devalue that. Technology, we can talk more about this but the reality is that all of these changes are taking place right in front of us. Jesus said in John 15, every branch in me that bears fruit, he talked about the branch that doesn't bear fruit will be cut off, but he said, every branch in me that bears fruit, I will prune it. Did you hear that? So if you're fruitful, if you're unfruitful, you get cut. If you're fruitful, you get cut. So every branch of me that bears fruit, I'll prune it. And the word prune simply means to eliminate all of those impediments to growth and development, to productivity. That's what pruning is. And to cut away is a crisis. I had a situation where in, in our property we had these evergreen trees that we planted to create a, a natural line um, going into a, a wooded area, because I live out in a wooded area, and they grew up very fast, and then all of a sudden, on the bottom, they began to thin out. And I asked the, 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 the tree company, the landscape company, I said, you know, what can we do about that? He said, you have to cut the tops off, and I'll do that. I said, well, the problem's on the bottom. I don't know trees like that. It's bad. So I said, the problem's on the bottom. He said, no, cut the tops off. I said, well, what's that going to do? He said, it's going to put the tree in crisis, so it's going to grow out on the bottom. I said, ah, I learned something. See, I learned something about trees and about people. Yeah, some people get too high. You got to cut the top off. 
and they get real skimpy on the bottom. You know what I mean, right? Amen. So Jesus said, anything that's being productive that's associated with him is going to go through a process as it moves from one level to another that is created in crisis. So God's pattern of purification is a pure pattern of purification by way of crisis. Because crisis to the Christian is not a negative, it's a positive. It reveals the cracks. It simply tells us where we are lacking and the fact that we need to make some changes. Amen? Amen? It forces us to another level of life. Einstein said so beautifully, he said, you cannot solve a problem at the same level at which it was created. So the problem itself forces you to another level of thinking and understanding and exposure. It forces you to expand your toolbox. Mark Twain said that if the only tool you have in your toolbox is a hammer, you'll treat everything like a nail. And that is so true. So crisis moves us from one level to another, and it forces us to expand our tools. It forces us to be exposed to something. Remember in the book of Acts, the church grew because of crisis. Persecution got the church out of Jerusalem and spread. Got it? So God does use these things as a pruning process. So everything that's happening culturally is forcing us to rethink a lot of the things that we we do and, and how we do them. Einstein also said something. He said, out of complexity, find simplicity. In other words, keep it simple. We can really complicate things in an already complicated world. And I love to keep things simple. Whether it's grand theological arguments, I like to find the simplest way of stating them. Whether it's deep and profound statements about life, I want to find the simplest way of stating them. And I will just keep going over and over it and over it and over it until I can articulate in a very simple way. And I like the level of simplicity, uh, seventh grade, third month of school. If you could get that, you get all the intellectuals and you get everybody else too. See? Simplicity. Simplicity of mission, simplicity of vision. And mission and vision is critical because organizations summarize their goals and objectives in a mission and a vision statement. That's how we, we sum it up. We put it into a mission and a vision statement. And boy, my vision statement and mission statement decades ago was about three paragraphs each. <laughs> now it's one sentence. You've been through the process, you know what I mean. You go through it and you keep refining it and developing it and it evolves as you grow, all right? And, and, and these both serve uh, a, a purpose for the organization, but too often we, we confuse them and, and not have a clear distinction because your, your, your mission really speaks to what you do now. And your vision speaks to what you want to do, who you want to be in the future. So the, the mission is very present. The vision looks out into the future. Got it? Your mission really deals with the present, and your vision looks out into the future. The mission statement concentrates on the present, defining your, your target audience. And I'm, can I speak a little corporately to you? Okay. Some folks, you know, they don't, they don't think that if you use corporate language and principles, it's not sanctified. You don't understand that every principle that is positive in human society upon which we can build 
a righteous society are kingdom principles. We don't steal from them. They stole from us. Because God is the source of life and truth and principle. Understand? So we're just recapturing what they just took and didn't, don't give God credit for. So, so your, your mission statement determines, identifies and defines clearly your target audience, the critical processes that, that, that you're going to engage in, and it informs you about the, your desired performance and how you measure that. Don't, don't get caught up in the language. I want to simplify all of this. Your vision statements look out into the future, and, and your vision statements should provide inspiration and motivation. You should get excited every time you think about your vision statement because it's looking out into the future. Jesus made it very simple. And we, you know, we, we want to make it culturally relevant, which is important, but we can make it so complicated that we move away from the simplicity of the original. Let me give you the original mission statement for the church. Preach the gospel. See, you want more. You can't, you can't settle for that. Look at you. You're waiting for the rest. He told you where to go into all the world. And what did he say to do? What did he say to do? Preach the gospel, three words. We've gotten fancy. We've come up with all these grand ideas. Our mission statement. We're going to take the world for Christ and we're going to bring in new... He said, preach the gospel. Is that what he said? What did he say? Preach the gospel. Very simple. All right? And so that was his mission statement for us. And his vision statement? Make disciples. You got it? What did he say? Make disciples. So you got to understand, that language is looking into the future. And the impact. The gospel is the message. Right? Discipleship is the result. So the, the mission is simple. Preach the gospel. The mission is the message. So important. I know this is paradigm shift. The message is the mission. That's why Salem Communications, what they do and everything. The message is the mission. The message is the mission. What is the message? These are the questions. What is the message? Who needs to hear it? How will we communicate it? How do we measure our performance? All those things are built into it. But the bottom line, the mission is what? The message. Preach the gospel. And the vision, what Jesus was looking at as he was praying for all of those who would believe on the words that would be spoken by these men that he developed and prepared to take it out into the world, he said, make disciples. Which means, I want to see this message impact individuals, and through individuals, impact society. And we're looking at how this message is going to affect people individually, families, communities, national entities, people groups, 
the world. Simple mission. Preach the gospel. Simple vision. Make disciples. Impact individuals in every aspect of their life. Family, jobs, socially, politically, morally, ethically, every aspect of their life and thereby impact the society. Because when Jesus was incarnated, he gave the model. The word became flesh. And then we could behold its glory. Because the glory is the intrinsic value, the worth, the dignity of something. So we cannot appreciate that unless it is incarnated. Unless it is fleshed out in human society, then we can step back and look at the impact that it's having and say, wow, glory to God. Amen? Amen. Now there's nothing wrong with all the flowery language that we wrap these simple things with. It's okay as long as you don't get lost in it. But we really need to get back to the essence of it. Now, we may get very sophisticated in how we get that message out there with all the technology and, and sight and sound and all the things that we have, but don't get away from the fact, because you can get lost in the delivery and miss the message. Our mission is the message. Preach the gospel. Be creative in how you do it. Absolutely. Use all of the resources available to you. But get the message out there. People need to hear the message. Don't dilute it. Don't water it down. Because that message demands change. It does. It doesn't let you get away. You know, someone said to me, well, you know, we we in our church, we have a no-judgment zone here where people are not judged. And then he said, like the woman who came, who was brought to Jesus, caught in adultery. He didn't judge her. And that's a whole interesting story right there. I'm still trying to figure out how they knew where she was going to be doing what she was doing at the time. That's another, that's a, that's a whole other luncheon, uh, Ron. <laughs> that was a setup. That's suspect, I'm telling you. That's very suspect. How did they know where she was going to be? And with whom? Doing what she was doing. Anyway, (laughs) moving right along. He said to her, where are your accusers? There are none. Neither do I condemn you. However, go and sin no more. Lest something worse come upon you. He removed the judgment and condemnation but made a demand on her lifestyle. How many understand what I'm talking about here? So we have to be careful that the message is not diluted because we're trying to make people feel comfortable. You may call the Holy Spirit the comforter but he doesn't come to make you comfortable. Not what he does. He will move you out of your comfort zone in order to affect change. That's why you're going to be looking for a new group when you leave here, right? Just some, some framework, and you know, I'm glad that I had the extra time. Are we okay, Ron? You've got to go, so I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to bring this 
for a quick close. We have to think in terms of longevity. My son and I have been in a 20-year succession plan. We're writing a book on succession. In fact, I fly back to New York tomorrow to do a panel discussion on succession because the church has not been good at that. Transitioning leadership, power, values, vision, mission. We haven't been good at that the way we should be. But the secret to success in any organization or entity or family or individual is longevity. Longevity. Having a legacy. Amen? Amen. And there's a secret to longevity. Too often, as I talk a little bit about these changing times that we're in and how it's impacting us and should impact how we do ministry, you know, we, we can enter a crisis and we start wondering because we start looking around us and seeing what other people are doing and the first question we ask is, okay, what do we need to change? Wrong question. Wrong question. All right? The first question you need to ask is, who are we? What do we do? If we do chicken right, doesn't mean we now start doing Chinese food. <laughs> Y'all heard the KFC commercial, right? Yeah. We do chicken right. And that came out of other people starting to do chicken. So they had to assert themselves by saying, we do chicken too, but we do it right. Never mind Louisiana recipe, we do it right. So the first thing you do in a rapidly changing world and society is clearly identify who you are. Your uniqueness, your original call and intent of God inside of who you are and your ministry. Very, very important. So you don't think about what you've got to change first. You've got to think about clarifying your own identity. And that's where the beginning of the resolution of the identity crisis takes place. Clarifying your own identity. Who are we and what do we do? And are we doing it to the best of our ability? Are we doing it with effectiveness and efficiency? And if not, let's go to work on that. Amen? Because I will tell you, your true demographics, the true profile of your membership is the people you draw without trying. Then you can work on the rest. But you need to identify who comes without you even trying to bring them. Because they are responding to something that they see as part of your identity. And you need to capture that and optimize that. Change. So the secret to longevity is managing two things, continuity and change. Please write this down. The secret to longevity is managing two things, continuity and change. And that begs two questions. Continuity is uninterrupted succession and flow. Change is transition from one method, style, system, structure, operating practice, level, quality to another. Managing continuity and change. And this is the question that's critical, and it begs. 
The secret to longevity is managing continuity and change. And what is the question? First and most important question, what should I continue and what should I change? What should we continue? What should we change? And here's why. Because if you continue what you should change, you become irrelevant. If you change what you should continue, you lose your identity. And that's a critical tension to pay attention to. Amen? So the secret to longevity of ministry is what? Continuity. Managing what? Continuity and change. And it begs the question, what should we continue? What do we need to change? Because if we change what we should continue, we'll lose our identity. If we continue what we should change, we'll become irrelevant. And that is the first line of response to this rapidly changing world and culture around us, especially as we do ministry. So your core values remain the same. Your core purposes remain the same. The time of fundamentals upon which you build your ministry remain the same. But how you deliver the message. Because method should never drive vision. Vision drives method. And when the method is no longer achieving the vision, you need to change the method. And that's what church is being challenged with right now. How do we deliver this message that is our mission? How do we make these disciples, which is the outcome of that mission, that message? Because change is inevitable. And either you will lead change, or change will lead you. That's a reality. It's inevitable. It's where we are. It's what's happening quickly. Because things are changing at the speed of thought. And it's making a demand on us who handle God's business to think carefully about who we are, where we are, and how we are responding to what's happening around us. There's so much more to be said. We don't have all that time. I hope that you got something out of our conversation today.